Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton.com or have left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos. Hey everybody, I hope you're having a great week. Uh, it has been the first week of the Danny Masterson retrial and you're going to hear from me and Tony Ortega about that. Uh, separately, so I won't be addressing that in this show, of course. I'm here to answer your questions. I wanted to give you a quick little uh, thing that we had um, on Friday night. I hope you will check out the Friday Critical Conversations show because my mom came on as a guest and we got uh, to talk about uh, our mutual Scientology history and have some laughs about that, take some calls. It was a fun show. So I hope you guys will check that out. And then yesterday I posted the Sensibly Speaking podcast with Dr. Clint Haycock as my guest. And we talked about a guy named Doug Wilson, uh, who is uh, a cult leader basically in Moscow, Idaho, running a sort of a Christian nationalist cult. And uh, we talked about that in some detail. And that whole topic and subject matter actually kind of went a little broad. So I hope you guys, if you know, I, I just wanted to keep plugging out there for you guys that there is a lot more here on this channel than just Scientology material, and I hope you will take the time to uh, check out all of it. Uh, there's very, very interesting content that relates to all the things that we use Scientology as a case study for. Well, we've got lots of other examples in the world where we can apply that sort of information and understand things better. And that's always been my whole, my whole effort with this is uh, not just focus on the dirty deeds of one group, but really talk about what we can all learn from this material and uh, maybe, you know, help live better lives ourselves. I don't know. Anyway, at least not fall prey to predators and coercive control. All right. So let's see. Any other points? Yes, I need to plug my Patreon page and uh, the fact that I've also turned on memberships here on YouTube. So you can, there's a join button uh, below the video here. If you want to support the channel, you know, buy me a cup of coffee kind of thing. They're uh, low rate. Uh, you know, there's like three levels of membership you can do on YouTube. Um, and, of course, Patreon. You can sign up for any amount. You don't have to use one of the pre-selected uh, levels or amounts. You can do a dollar. You can do $50 or anything in between. Uh, or as much as you want, of course. And I have some very generous uh, donors out there, by the way. Uh, Patreon supporters. And I want to thank them again right now. Every single one of you guys. New and old signups. Uh, you guys are really keeping the lights on and the show going here. So, that all being said... Uh, let's go ahead and get on with your questions. Logamug. Do any high-ranking Scientology staff or Sea Org get to live in luxury, or is that limited only to Miscavige? Hey, thank you very much for this question. And I thought uh, it's actually kind of a flash answer kind of question, because the answer, of course, is no. But I thought I might use this uh, opportunity to talk a little bit about, at least from my own experience and what I saw with other people while I was in uh, the Sea Org, the, the sort of, um, you know, what is normal, what is luxury, and how relative of a term that is. And I thought I might discuss that just a little bit, because my standards while I was in the Sea Org for what was a great time out were pretty damn low compared to what they are now. 
um, you know, Michelin star restaurants and five star hotels and things like that were never a reality for me as a Sea Org member. They could be now if I, you know, had the resources to go to go do that. But as a Sea Org member, even if I had some money, that was never going to happen. Uh, for me, uh, as a and this is the the reason I th- I'm throwing this out here is because you know there's a thing. Uh, there's this thing called trauma bonding. It's a, like how do you how do you get somebody to stay when you are an abuser? How does a group maintain membership or retain members when they're abusing them? You know, yelling at them, screaming at them, beating on them, uh, psychologically tormenting them, not feeding them, not you know, not clothing them. All of that, all of that was going on in the Sea Org. Why would we stay? And and this is a question that a lot of people ask. Well, it has to do with this thing called trauma bonding, where it's not just a matter of your relationship with this group or person is all bad. There are moments and times when the the you know the cycle kind of goes up and things get a little better, and there are reasons to stay because you feel that the initial investment that was so great and so awesome that kind of caused you to be connected or bonded with this person or group is reinforced by another round of some positivity, some compliments, some good reports, a commendation, a night off, a bonus of some kind. But these don't have to be that big. They don't have to be even as big as your initial thing. It's kind of, you know, in a way, it's a little bit of chasing that high of trying to get that again. And you never quite get as good as it was but you get enough and your standards fall over time because you're getting less and less that even a little bit of good seems like a lot. And this was the mind frame that I, the you know, sort of state of mind I was in when I first started going out after I got off the RPF. Three years of absolute hell. I mean, three years of just degraded living conditions, dorm style living with a bunch of dudes. You know, it was just, it was bad. And uh, of course, being sequestered away in this little bubble world inside the bubble world of the Sea Org, you know, being on the RPF where you don't get to talk to other people who aren't on the RPF and uh, very limited contact, no time off, no holidays, nothing. So you get off of that and you're like, man, a McDonald's trip would feel like luxury. And it did. Because that was the first thing I did when I got off the RPM. I was like, I want some food, you know. And I, <laughs> uh, and I think I went over to the Wendy's or something. But, um, you know, and that was to me like, oh, that was as high as I could dream, you know. And I've commented before about how when I was in the Sea Org, you know, the idea, I would, I would literally fantasize about going out and having a steak dinner and how that would be the ultimate expression to me of, of, of luxury, of, of fame, of, of fortune, of money, you know, is like, oh, you could, you could have a steak dinner every night, you know, this was kind of the, the way I could relate to the idea of having money. Um, and so it what so I guess where I'm going with this is that it wasn't really that hard to buy me off, you know, in terms of I got to, uh, I finished this RPF program and then I went over to bridge for a while, but I kind of bucked and got out on recruitment tours where I was going out and doing recruitment for about a year. And that meant I got to get the hell off the base because I was sick of being in pack base. I knew every corner of pack base intimately, <laughs> uh, cleaned it, renovated it, worked on it, you know, like everything from the bottom to the top. So I wanted to get away from that base and I wanted to get away from all the pressure of it. And and, and the reward for me was being able to get some money to go out on a project. I'll go do anything because I get to eat out. 
I get to have time off. I get to have like a little bit of time off in that we're not, you know, not not anywhere near as under the gun as uh, when you're on the base where you have the whole social pressure and everybody's on you. When you're out on a project, it's you and one other person usually, you know, maybe a couple other people. And it's not slack time, but it's definitely way less pressure and oversight and regulation than when you're on the base. And like I said, you get to eat, you know, you get to sleep in a hotel. It's clean. The sheets are clean. Everything's kind of nice. Um, you know, the walls, the, the bathroom is, the shower is actually a good shower. Uh, it has some pressure to it. I mean, it's like these little things that really meant everything to me as a Sea Org member. Ah, yeah, send me out on project. Absolutely. I'll go do whatever. And that was how I got out doing recruitment work. But mainly I was, you know, and I was doing it because I wanted to get new Sea Org members. But let's be honest, I was also doing it because it was this way of living on the Sea Org dime, but living better than a Sea Org member in terms of food and and sleep to a, to a great degree and just sleeping quarters and conditions. And I thought, and, you know, and bringing this back to your question, Logamug, I thought I was living in luxury. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about, you know, two and a half and three star hotels, right? It was like, oh, ah, the best, you know, that was kind of where my head was at. And it took a while of doing that before that started losing its shine. And I realized, oh, these are second rate hotels and this is kind of second rate food, you know, but I was out enough that I actually kind of got used to that. And going back to the base was such a shock because the food there was just awful and the schedule and everything else and the pressure. And you could just feel when you went back to the base how the, it was just a different energy from the rest of the world. You know, you go there and you just know, and you just, it was tense. My stomach would knot up every time I would go back to the base because I wasn't sure. You know, it was almost like feeling like I was going into a labyrinth of monsters and they could jump out of corners at any moment and like, ah! And, you know, it'd be some emergency, some problem, some situation, some fuck up I did, something I was going to get in trouble for. I was constantly on edge when I was on the base. And when I was out at the orgs and I was out getting recoveries or recruits, people loved me and it was great. And there wasn't all this pressure and it was a very different kind of environment. Um, you know, there was, again, I don't want to like, it's not, it wasn't a total black and white. It was more like awful black and then a little less black, you know, less gray, uh, a little more gray, you know, uh, as far as dealing with Sea Org members and the, and all this, you know, still having all the reports and all the other crap. You guys get the idea. But I just thought I'd uh, talk about this a little bit because it was, when I thought about it, I went, wow, what a contrast that was. And how that really did kind of keep me around for a while longer. If I had graduated the RPF and had to go back, I went on, I went to Bridge for about nine months. I was working at Bridge Publications making books. And I hated it there. Hated it. And they didn't like me either. I was color. I, had, I, did, I came to learn. I had some color blindness and I was you know, kind of screwing up on some printing stuff. And I couldn't see the problem with the colors. I literally couldn't see it. And this was a source of friction, and my attitude was kind of a source of friction because I wasn't really particularly kowtowing to anybody anymore. I was this, or, you know, I'd say yes, sir, no, sir, and all that, but I was like, 
if you gave me a dumbass order, I was kind of like, you know, it's kind of a dumbass order. <laughs> you know, I wasn't, I wasn't really interested in taking anybody's shit anymore. And so uh, when I finally started bucking to get, you know, out of there and go do recruitment, I think they were okay with me going off and doing that. And I did well at it. So that's why they kept me going. But uh, boy, I was just, it was, you know, I didn't want to, I was bristling, let's put it that way. I was kind of bristling with authority on the base after I was done with the RPF because I wasn't afraid of people anymore in the Sea Org. But the environment would still clench my stomach. You know, it was always like this friction between me and the other, the other crew, especially senior type people. And um, and I just, I just didn't want that. And I didn't like that. I didn't like the way that was working. And so I was happy to get the hell out of there and go live the life of luxury, <laughs> you know, doing, doing Sea Org recruitment. Uh, so anyway, like I said, I thought that just might be a little interesting compare contrast of life in the Sea Org and, you know, on a kind of a, you know, daily sort of regular basis. What's it like? And what do you think about? And there you go. Jeff Boyer. Do you know the highest OT level attained by David Miscavige? If I understand correctly, having never been a Scientologist, the upper levels on the bridge involve self-auditing, yes? If so, that seems perfectly tailored for the narcissistic head of the cult, whether Hubbard or Miscavige, to advance himself to the highest levels with no accountability. Okay, Jeff, thank you. Well, this, this, uh, the answer to this has been floating around for quite a while, Claire Headley did an interview with uh, Jeffrey Augustine quite some time ago and sort of spilled the beans that uh, Miscavige had not gotten past OT7. And he has not actually, apparently, per Claire, he's not even been in session since 1993. Now, of course, you know, that's that's uh, 10-year, 13-year-old data, so maybe he's been back in session since then, but none of us, you know, there's no indication of that. <laughs> And everybody in Scientology, and I think I've answered this question before as well, and everybody in Scientology pretty much assumes Miscavige is OT8. He saw the OT8 materials as far back as when it was released in 1989, the very first version of, of OT8. I mean, you know, he, he saw it. He was the one ordering that they that Lucifer HCLB, that bulletin where Hubbard says that he is uh, Lucifer, the bringer of light, and will come back as a politician, and that whole, that whole deal... Uh, that was the bulletin that was removed from the original version of OT8. And David Miscavige is the one who ordered that. Uh, as far as we know, I can't imagine anybody else could have the authority to do such a thing. So um, so that's kind of putting two and two together a little bit there. But it, it speaks to the assumption that, oh, he's OT8. Of course. Of course he is. He's David Miscavige. He's the head. He's the ecclesiastical leader of this religious movement. Of course he's at the very top of the pyramid in all ways, you know, even though he's not. He's uh, he's barely trained auditor. He's, uh, you know, he's OT7, I suppose, or was auditing on OT7. And, um, you know, and kind of, you know, I imagine like Hubbard, the body Thetan concept, if he even believes in it, and I really don't think he's much of a true believer anymore. I don't think he goes in session because I don't think he really believes in Scientology. But that's contentious. There are indications that maybe he really does believe in Scientology still, and he really does believe in Thetans and and uh, Thetan influence, and therefore body Thetans, and therefore he does kind of feel like at some in some level Maybe he needs to get back in session, but I, I just don't see it. I don't see a diehard true believer in that guy. I see somebody who's off on his own course, doing his own thing, and very, very much 
on that road of doing whatever the hell he wants to do, not what Hubbard would have expected him to do. He he went off that he took that right, you know, to Albuquerque over a decade ago. Um Okay, so then in terms of, you know, it seems perfectly tailored for the narcissistic head of the cult. Well, you guys might have seen, um, you know, a couple months ago, I did a show about Tom Cruise and OT levels as a one, and on my Critical Conversations show and talked uh, deeply about how the OT levels and especially OT levels uh, 5, 6, and 7 will really create narcissism in a person. Um, because it, it imbues you with, with there's assumptions about the effects you're having because of your auditing sessions that you are affecting things outside of yourself. You are literally solving problems that exist outside of you, not just within your mind or your spirit, but real physical universe problems or issues or situations, and your body thetans represent those things, and by auditing them, by exorcising them and releasing them, you are literally solving problems around you. It is, it's magical thinking to a degree that is uh, really quite something. I mean, it's really magical thinking. And yet that's what the OT levels are all about. It's magic, don't you see? So, uh, yeah. So anyway, that's, that's my answer on that one. Jonathan Perry. The Church of Scientology uses the Christian-style cross symbol with a star behind it, but something jumped out at me. It looks more like a British-style longsword, upside down, stuck in a rock like King Arthur. I acknowledge I'm grasping at straws here, but there is a handle, handguards, and the blade, which has a line or crevasse in the middle like a bayonet. I know this is far-fetched, but I'm really starting to think Hubbard tried to use a cross for religious symbology, but threw a sword in there. You've explained how he uses subliminal messages like the volcano on the Dianetics book that any Thetan is supposed to respond to. The sword is also extremely symbolic for Navy officers, Marines, and many maritime entities, including the British, the Japanese, you name it. Hubbard was a naval officer. Anyway, another wild theory, but would love to hear if you possibly noticed something there. Thanks again, and keep up your work. All right, Jonathan, let's go ahead and take a look at this. I am um, I am poo-pooing your idea. However, uh, you know, it's very possible that you could be right. There's, this is all interpretation and, and sort of, you know, supposition as to what we think of these symbols, the very nature of symbols. And I think Dan Brown, the author of The Da Vinci Code, probably blew this up into public uh, perception more than any other author in history. Symbols can mean almost anything to anybody, and over time they change uh, their meanings, and they have multiple layers of meanings. And uh, so how you approach it depends an awful lot on context. Who, when, where, and what way were they using the symbol? That tells you more about what they were probably thinking the symbol meant or what use it had in that context, whereas somebody else could be using it, the same symbol, in an exactly different way, and so hence we could have this the cross as a sword. That is absolutely valid interpretation of that symbol, but is it valid for how Hubbard was thinking about it? I would say no, and let me walk you through a couple things on this. And now really this was pretty, I've, I've, I've kind of gone over this before, but I thought let's go ahead and walk through it again in relation to your question. Let's look at this rose cross. 
All right. This is something you can actually look up on Wikipedia. <laughs> and I go to it because of the fact that anybody can look this up. I don't have to go digging into deep academic works or the literature or anything to find this. Now, the Rose Cross is a symbol largely associated with the uh, Rosicrucianists and the Rosicrucian order. And it's a cross with a rose at its center. And the cross is often red, gold, or white. And, and there's also... The use of the cross has a tradition of uh, esotericism, of esoteric teachings, and those, but with some Christian tradition or Christian tenets, which is kind of an interesting hybrid. You have uh, sort of scientific thinking, you have sort of religious thinking, and then you have esotericism, which is kind of not really fully accepted by both. There's other definitions for what esotericism is. We don't have to go in deep into that right now to know that there's this sort of branch of symbology, numerology, uh, the occult practices, spiritualism. There's a lot of things that don't quite fit neatly in the in the buckets of science or religion, and they're kind of in this in this gray area, this other place, and and this has been kind of bunched together and called Western esotericism, or the mystery schools uh, is another term that's been used for this. Now, this cross, therefore, has uh, been used and utilized in lots of different ways. And where we kind of find that it starts crossing with L. Ron Hubbard is where we get into initiatory groups. And we see that this cross or the Rose Cross has uh, connections with Freemasonry going back uh, to the 1700s, maybe earlier. But then we get to this Rose Cross or the Rosy Cross in direct connection with Hubbard when we look at the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. And I want you guys to remember that L. Ron Hubbard called the first or one of the first series of public lectures uh, that, it, that were done in Phoenix, Arizona when Hubbard was really going big on introducing Scientology to the world as a religious thing and a thing that could help people he gave a series of lectures called lecture the, the golden dawn lectures and i believe in my heart of hearts uh you know knowing about this stuff that there is no coincidence there at all um now of course the actual hermetic order of the golden dawn was nothing to do with scientology directly but the rose cross and here's an image of it uh, was utilized by the Golden Dawn. The symbolism of the Golden Dawn Rosy Cross is right there. Uh, and we don't have to, again, I'm not going to go into all the details about this, but the next place where we find the symbol of the Rosy Cross playing a substantial role is within Thalema. And Thalema is Aleister Crowley's uh, magical system. And again, it has different meanings there The in uh uh, reading from the wiki here, that in a cosmological context, the rose uh, Nuit, it's, that's the name for it, is Nuit, N-U-I-T, the infinitely expanded goddess of the night sky, and the cross is Hadit, the ultimately contracted atomic point. I guess that makes sense within Crowley's system. It was the job of the adept to identify with the appropriate symbol so as to experience uh, the mystical conjunction of opposites, which leads to attainment. And yes, opposites, opposite, what Hubbard called dichotomies, is a major part of upper-level material and Hubbard's uh, Scientology theory. It does connect with Thelema and Thelemic concepts. 
So again, we get this sort of, okay, Rosicrucianism and then this Rosy Cross and then Golden Dawn. And then we get this direct connection with Aleister Crowley, who we know Hubbard loved and adored and thought was, was a great guy. And then it goes even further into the OTO, the Ordo Templi Orientis. And remember, this is Jack Parsons' outfit. Uh, the, the Ordo Templi Orientis was uh, Crowley's organizational uh, sort of church. And Jack Parsons, the JPL rocket scientist, was the head of the OTO on the West Coast and ran the biggest lodge or order of that. Uh, I've done podcasts with people uh, from the OTO talking about it in present time and its history. You can go check those out. We have definitely plumbed the depths of this. And the Rose Cross also has a place in the system of Ordo Templi Orientis. It's associated with the fifth degree the title of which is Sovereign Prince Rose Croy and the Knight of the Pelican and Eagle. So, um, yeah, of it, Crowley writes uh, this whole paragraph, which I'm not going to read to you. And then we get finally to its modern form. And here is one image of a rosy cross. And you can see from the outline of it with, with the rose in the middle, if you were to remove that rose and put a... Um, uh, a cross, uh, which is the you know the the four pointed cross that sci- that the Scientology cross has, and maybe I'll lay over another graphic of that here. You can see the outline is exactly the same. The cross is uh, looks to me clearly to have origin in the Rose Cross. So that's why I put those things together is because the dots connect much more easily than having to think. Well, let's see, navy, naval connection, sword, sure. But, uh, you know, sword in the stone, I, I don't see it. I don't see it at all. And I don't see the symbolism there either because Hubbard was never someone who talked about or was involved with or in any way sort of idolized King Arthur or the Arthurian legends or that time period or anything like that. Hubbard uh, had no con- real connections with any of that, whereas he had all kinds of connections with uh, Golden Dawn, with Aleister Crowley, and with the OTO. So... There, is, there you go. Pam Barnett, I was wondering what your thoughts were on R. Kelly. Do you think he's a cult leader? It seems like he fits the criteria. What do you think about his enablers? Did they help him because of money or because they were also brainwashed or part of his cult? Okay, R. Kelly, a long and sad story, and we're not going to go over all the details here. I could do an entire podcast on this guy and what and all the things he did. The the uh, history of this guy goes on and on and on for pages of his sexual assaults and um, it, just really disgusting behavior towards minors, uh, girls and boys. Uh, R. Kelly was and is a sexual predator and abuser, a child abuser. And, uh, and trafficker, and he was found guilty of basically human and sexual trafficking uh, and racketeering, I mean, to such a degree that it was, it was made into a racketeering charge because there was profit there. There was mon- monetary profit apparently involved in all of this too. And uh, yeah, just really, really gross behavior. Covered up for years by managers, by people on his production teams, uh, people were in the industry apparently turned a blind eye to this. I don't get involved in my their personal lives of our recording artists, and yet some of the alleged criminal, not only alleged, some of the things that he was found guilty of, some of the acts that he was found, uh, you know, abusing kids, were in recording studios. Actually, took place while he was doing recordings. 
Uh, so, you know, is it is it really plausible that that people uh, in the industry didn't know, didn't turn a blind eye, didn't condone this? No, it's not plausible at all. Of course, people knew, and those enablers were, I believe, from what I've I've read, uh, predominantly motivated by money. Uh, we're talking about a very very famous uh, R and B artist. Uh, R. Kelly was not nobody, and he didn't have a couple hit songs. This was a man who was uh, cultural. He, he was kind of a cultural shifter, and uh, and his music and his work influenced a lot of people. Uh, so people in his orbit were uh, people who were you know potentially going to be making a lot of money being connected with him. And it is sick and sad and tragic how uh, people in those kinds of rarefied air of big, big money will condone some of the most heinous, disgusting, uh, you know, human rights and sexual rights violations that you can imagine. And it, and it happens, and, it, and we know about it. We know about it with Jeffrey Epstein. We know about it with others. And we don't have to go into deep, weird, Q, deep state conspiracy theories to know that, you know, people can be awful to each other. And celebrities, with the amount of power and entitlement that they get because of the money and fame they get, can let that go to their head. And R. Kelly did from a very early time. The man was apparently a serial predator for most of his life. Uh, and apparently he was preyed upon as a child as well. Not that that excuses any of this, but it certainly does con uh, sort of, you know, commentary on the cyclic nature of sexual abuse and predation. So, and they, of course, the coercive control that goes along with this, right? This is, this is the world of coercive control at its worst levels is violence and sexual assault and when the children are involved it's there you know tragedy doesn't even begin to describe uh the you know the consequences of this so was he a cult leader yeah he definitely was running his own little cult he uh he you know had undue influence over young women and men and he used that undue influence to uh to take advantage of these people uh, this went on for years. He basically held them in slavery. There were uh, lots and lots of awful, awful and really disgusting things connected with this too. Things we don't need to you know, get into all the details of. You can look it up if you're that interested. Um, but as far as checking off all the boxes of a cult leader, yeah, every single one of them. With the way that he treated his victims and the way that he kept them around and... Um, and sort of, like I said, controlled them in every part of their life. And there were a number of victims who testified to this fact with video evidence of it. This is not conjectural. We know what this guy did. It's, it's recorded. Uh, he, was, he was dumb enough to record all of it and keep it. And the police found it. And they found it again and again. And, he's, and he was a serial, habitual predator he couldn't he really couldn't stop himself until he was finally put in prison and stayed there and that's where he is now and it doesn't look like he's ever coming out uh, his prison sentences uh, from federal prison uh, at the federal level in New York and then at the state level in Chicago I think he's in prison for like 31 years or something so I'd be amazed if he if he comes out ever uh, and for somebody like him uh, he's you know, and he's been re he's been completely unaccountable, totally resistive. Claims he's innocent. It's all a setup. 
and which is impossible in the face of the physical evidence that we have. It's not just testimonial. He said, she said evidence that put him away. It's mountains of evidence um, that that shows very, very clearly a repeating pattern of um, of sexual violations. So, uh, so he well deserves his time away in prison. Um, but yeah, every box, uh, absolutely. And perhaps, you know, I will speak to the fact that sometimes people in the orbit of such individuals, their moral foundations become shaky. They change because of the social pressures and because of the opportunities and because of their own emotional needs and contributions to that, right? They, these enablers have their own needs for security and money and stability and all of that in their life. And here they are following somebody who's changing the culture in all these positive ways, giving to charity, doing all these award shows. All these people are praising this man for decades. And these people are along for the ride. And so it's easy in such a place to fool yourself or think, oh, well, these things aren't, you know, I can turn a blind eye to this or, oh, this isn't my business or, oh, I don't need to acknowledge this is happening or just straight up denial. What? What? I'm not seeing anything. People have all kinds of bizarre reactions to outlandish criminal behavior that happens around them. You never know what you're going to do or what you're going to think until it's happening to you. I, I, that is something I like to stress about this. And again, not to give any of these enablers a pass, but simply to talk about the behavior because it's so outlandish and awful. And yet, you know, people who get into the orbit of these superstar mega influencers can become so, you know, starstruck and be, and be in an environment of coercion that they feel they can't or, you know, it's somehow impossible for them to, to do anything but go along with what's happening. And even some of his staff, uh, I think a few of them, uh, were testifying in the, in the criminal cases against him as to what he had been up to once they kind of got free and clear of it and saw what the hell was going on. It was like, oh, yeah, let me tell you all about it. You know, uh, again, I'm not in any way defending them. I'm not in any way justifying or rationalizing their their enabling. Uh, it's not ever okay, but it's understandable how people get into situations like that and why it is that we need to teach about this stuff so that people, when they see the first red flags before these pressures are hitting them in such a way that they are feeling powerless to act, if they can see it and spot it and acknowledge it for what it is early on, no, this is wrong. I'm not agreeing with this. This is not what I'm going to be part of, and I'm out. And who knows over the years how many people just you know up and vanished out of R. Kelly's vicinity because of exactly that. But you know it took way too long. Uh, I think over 20 years for all of this to really hit the light and stay out there because there was a round that happened in the early 2000s and he kind of and that all uh, was sort of all those charges had to be dropped on technicalities because R. Kelly and one of the aspects of that was R. Kelly was still holding influence uh, undue influence over his victims and blackmailing them into silence and that he did that was not allowed to happen the second time around in uh, 2019 I believe when um, when the, the feds came in, and uh, that was that. So anyway, there's my answer on R. Kelly. Michael Yoder, 
In the Descent of Man lecture, 1955, L.R.H. talks about ownership and misownership regarding engrams. He said that ownership can cause the erasure of engrams, secondaries, and even bodies. He later said that misownership can cause restructuring of a lock and secondaries. These are new terms to me. What are secondaries and locks and what is misownership? Michael, you haven't even read Dianetics and you're studying 1955 lectures uh, called The Descent of Man. You're so outgrading it. You are going in such out order with all of this. You should have read Dianetics to start with because then you would know what locks and secondaries are. Those are basic Dianetics terms. <laughs> uh, so a lock is, um, okay, first off, you have an engram, which is a moment of pain and unconsciousness stored in your reactive mind. And a lock is a later episode after the engram, never before, it's after the engram, because it depends on the engram, where you run into similar sets of perceptions to what you perceived in the original engram. So if you got bit by a dog in the original engram, and later on, let's say a year or two later, you're living your life, you don't have the engram anywhere in your mind, you're not thinking about it, and a dog starts barking in your vicinity and something goes tingle, tingle inside because your reactive mind goes ding, ding, ding because of that dog barking. And that is a lock on the engram. Okay, that moment right there of the dog barking is a re-stimulation of the engram. Uh, a secondary is a more serious re-stimulation. It's a moment of pain and loss or threat of loss that keys in or re-stimulates an earlier engram because, again, the perceptions are similar. And you've got millions of billions of engrams on your, on, in your past which can be re-stimulated. So almost any loss or threat of loss, your grandmother dies or you, know, you lose something important or you get kicked out of your job or something that threatens your survival in some significant way, and you're like, oh, and you have this painful emotion. It was also called, secondaries also used to be called painful emotion engrams. Um, but they are these moments of painful emotion and suffering and trauma. And, uh, uh, and, it, and it relies on an earlier engram for its uh, actual full force. The engrams are the things that hold it all together. All right, so those are your engrams and those are your secondaries and locks. Now, misownership. This is uh, where we are talking again about as-ising things. Remember, I talked about this a week or two ago where you have to create a perfect duplicate of something in order for it to vanish. If I wanted to make this deck of cards go away forever, then according to Scientology theory, I would have to, in my mind or with my, you know, sort of Thetan here, I would have to create in the physical universe right here and now an exact perfect duplicate of this deck of cards down to the exact atom, all of it, and have it occupy the same space in the same time that this one is, and boom, those cards are gone. And that's called as-ising something. And this is the way auditing works, is you as-is mental image pictures, which have electrical charge connected with them and mass connected with them, okay? This is the entire basis of Scientology auditing. Well, ownership is one of the ways that you can alter the truth of something. So if I made a perfect duplicate of this deck of cards, right? Ding, I've created it, it's perfect, except I say you did it. I didn't create the cards, you did. I have misassigned the ownership of that deck of cards to you. I blamed you for it. And what does that do? 
It makes it persist. It will never, ever, ever go away. You cannot as is it because you have misowned it. And I hope that little brief example and, and, uh, and definition there, I hope that makes sense. It's, it's Scientology metaphysics. It's, it's how Scientology, it's how L. Ron Hubbard imagines that as ising or getting rid of your past trauma, this is how it works at a, at a sort of mechanical, spiritual level is creating duplicates of the thing. But, oh, you didn't create a duplicate of it because you assigned responsibility for it to someone else. And let's say, for example, that you come along and smack some guy on the back of the head, right? You've now committed an overt against this person. And they look at you and go, hey, what the hell, man? And you go, no, it was this guy over here. Because you're standing next to Joe Schmo, right? He's like, no, it was Joe who hit you, not me. And the dude gets pissed off at Joe now, right? And Joe doesn't know what's up. And Joe's like, what the hell are you talking about? Right? You're like, hey, why'd you hit me? And Joe's like, I didn't, I didn't hit you. What are you talking about, right? And you get to stand there and go, he, he, he. Well, guess what? You've now created an incident of, you know, this overt, and you misassigned. You, you, you assigned ownership of it to, to Joe, to somebody else. He's the one who hit you, not me. And that's the way Hubbard says that you will get a persistence of that overt and eventually a compulsion to do it again and again and again and again because you've misassigned ownership, right? You did not take responsibility for it. Therefore, you never as is it. Therefore, it never could go away. There it is. That's the, that's the deepest levels of Scientology we almost have is as is things that way or, or, you know, this whole ownership thing. So I hope that all makes sense to you, Michael. And uh, there's your technical moment. All right, let's do some flash answers. Owen Raybold. It seems David Miscavige is essentially in hiding now. Do you think he's likely to spend his days like Hubbard did, i.e. in hiding due to legal cases? Certainly looks that way. Some have predicted he will try to escape on the free winds rather than have to appear in any U.S.-based court case. Thoughts? In a word, yes. David Miscavige has been in hiding for quite a while now, ever since the whole uh, suppressive, uh, the SP Times and the whole um, Truth Rundown series back when Mike and Marty and those guys came out, Tom DeVock and Amy Scobie and those people spoke uh, to the uh, St. Pete Times or the Tampa Bay Times and exposed all this stuff about the, the hole at, uh, in San Jacinto at the Gold Base and kind of spilled the beans on the musical chairs and all that stuff, Mark Headley and Claire, all those guys coming out and, and spilling the beans on all that really put Miscavige into hiding, and he never went back to gold or hardly ever has gone back there as far as we know. Now he pretty much is based out in Clearwater where he is safe from process servers, as we've come to see, until... The matter gets pushed and pushed and pushed, and he was finally considered served. But who cares, because that case went to religious arbitration. So uh, we'll see if it's uh, going to survive that. Um, as far as David Miscavige goes, he yeah, he is not. he does not feel safe in public. He's got armed security around him, hired professionals. He has the Sea Org around him. He's got people who will die for him. Uh, it's, you know, it's not, he's, but he's got to stay within those confines. Otherwise, he's out in the real world where process servers could get him, he could be deposed, and he could end up in jail. And he damn well knows it. So, uh, so that's pretty much Miscavige's life now.
Steve Wood, I know Hubbard invented Scientology in all the OT levels, but was he OT8? And if so, did he do all the levels as he laid out for the public? And if so, who awarded him or agreed he was OT8? Or did he simply just say, hey, I'm OT8, I invented it, end of story. I'd be grateful if you could shed light on this question. Okay, Steve, yeah, in a word, uh, yes, uh, Hubbard invented all of it. Hubbard could say he was OT gazillion if he wanted to, and people would have given that to him. He, he was the guy who said anything goes when it comes to Scientology, and so he's the only one who had to give himself any authority on finishing levels and things like that. Now, he claimed that he did do the levels and did do the work the same way other people did, but when it came to the OT levels, he, I think, would have said, oh, no, I was doing a lot more than what you guys have to do because he was the one, the way he described it is he's the one mapping the course. He's the one who had to hit the rocks. He's the one who had to find all the, the hidden traps and everything. And so then he could lay out a path where you didn't have to. So he's the one who took all the shellacking so you could walk through it without getting harmed. And that was how he put it. So we all thought as Scientologists that Hubbard did what well above and beyond what we were going to do on the OT levels. And we were grateful for that fact. <laughs> That's how we thought about it. So uh, anyway, there you go. Sheila, as a longtime SO officer, you likely became personally familiar with the snitching and reporting culture of Scientology. No doubt you had many reports written on you, as that seems to be just how things go in that environment. What was your reaction to the first written report you ever saw about you? Oh, God, I hated getting reports on me. Hated it. Absolutely. I would get furious. I would actually get like kind of inside. Like, what? How dare this person write me up? And usually the reason I would get so, one of the reasons I would tell myself at least that I would get so pissed is because I'd be like, I saw you do X, Y, and Z and I didn't write you up, you fucking asshole, right? Like, how come you're writing me up right now? And of course, usually reports were written because somebody else found out about it and the guy who wrote the report would have gotten in trouble if he didn't write a report because somebody else found out, right? That group pressure thing, right? They were fine with it all the way up until it looked like they were going to be in trouble for what you did. So, oh, no, I'm writing that guy up. And of course, you know, tit for tat and all of that. So uh, when I had reports written on me and I, you know, I don't remember the very first one, but I never liked it ever. I, I was always, it was always a personal affront to me when somebody was writing reports on me. And often I would just sit down and write a report on them. Oh yeah. You know, and Hubbard talked about this. He talked about how there could be KR wars where you just start writing each other up for stuff. Because uh, I was not the only one who experienced that kind of uh, animosity and and uh, sort of, oh, yeah, well, I'll get back at you, you know, and back and forth it goes. And the ethics uh, guys were supposed to be trained to, to deal with this stuff and calm things down. And a couple of times that had to happen, you know, because I would get into these KR wars with people. Uh, not an uncommon thing in Scientology because uh, it's literally in the policy on how to prevent it. So there you go. All right, that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around and listening to me babble on here. I always appreciate your viewership. And I will ask you again to please support me through Patreon, PayPal, Venmo, channel memberships, 
However you want to show me some love, I very much would appreciate it if you did. And I want to remind you that I do consulting, uh, personal consultation. I That is $100 an hour that I will charge you for that, which is next to nothing in this space, by the way. Uh, but that is advice, uh, help, guidance in cult recovery and dealing with efforts or situations of coercive control, how to get people out of cults, how to help talk to people who are there, that kind of situation I can help. So those all being said, uh, thank you very much again for coming around and I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.